Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. So thank you for tuning into the podcast today. On today's episode, I have Dr. Everwine. He is an internal medicine specialist who has dedicated his post-residency training to furthering his expertise in the evaluation and management of obesity and hormone optimization. I heard Dr. Everwine speak at AMMG in Miami on the impact of environmental factors and their impact on our health and hormones. So I thought he would be a great guest for the show. So welcome to the show today, Dr. Everwine. Thank you so much, Amy. I was looking forward to this the whole weekend, so really excited to be here. Well, thank you. So why don't we just start there, because you gave a great presentation at AMMG a few months ago, and let's educate the listeners on why are we living in an epidemic of suboptimal hormone levels? Yeah, it's funny the way my trajectory has taken me from internal medicine, hospitalist medicine, acute medicine, to now more into the preventative side. And whenever you talk age management, you have to think about hormones because hormones are what dictate the way our body reacts, the way our body ages. So I first started as a hospitalist, acute medicine in the Miami area after completing my internal medicine residence. Then I opened a weight loss clinic because the lowest hanging fruit of wellness is always nutrition. We need to eat better. We need to keep our body fat, our body weight into good ranges because that's the lowest hanging food of wellness. You can't get away from that. But even with the weight loss clinic, I was noticing a lot of my patients could not progress, could not get optimized. And that's when I got introduced to the world of hormone optimization. Because in medical school, we don't learn anything about this. So although I was a nutrition major for my undergrad. Which um, is rare. That's rare to see for a doctor, though. (laughs) It was, yeah. yeah. So for an MD to really know about nutrition, it's not very often. This is so unfortunate. We barely get two hours of nutrition class in med school. This is crazy, right? So again, hormones, it's even worse. Not only you don't get any training on it, but you're being told that they are dangerous for you. So I had to unlearn everything I had learned in medical school to really relearn when I went to functional medicine classes. And that's when I got my certification with AMMG and I started kind of seeing more and more patients with the hormone world. But same thing with hormones. As I was It's been 12 years that I've been doing hormone replacement. In the beginning of my practice, most of my patients, I mostly focus on men's health. They were older men, middle-aged men, 50s, 60s, some late 40s. When you were at a 40-year-old, it was, wow, this guy's young. And then over the past five, eight years, I'm starting to see younger and younger men coming with true hormone deficiency. You know, they're not lying about it. They're not feeling well. And I kept asking myself, why is this happening? What we learn in medical school is that Low testosterone, testosterone deficiency, happens to older men. Late onset hypogonadism. As you get older, your testosterone decreases. Eventually, you go almost similar to andropause. When we think about three, four generations ago, our dads and granddads did not need testosterone, maybe later in years. So what was happening in our world? Then I started seeing even more, okay, hormones is one thing. Why are we seeing so many more cancers, right? So now colorectal cancer, even the insurance companies, they pay for the colonoscopy at the age of 45 because we are seeing so many cancers in younger patients. Why are we seeing so much multiple sclerosis, neurodegenerative disease, Parkinson's disease? Why are we seeing so much infertility? It's almost every organ system. We're seeing more chronic diseases. 
Did our gene pool change that much over the past 40 or 50 years? Why are we so unhealthy? And that's when now I became introduced to the world of the exposome, what we are being exposed to on a daily basis from the time we were in the womb until now. And the environmental toxins that are around us are really a big driver of this increase of chronic diseases. I don't know if you're aware right now. So after I did my presentation at AMMG, so that's how I made the link. I made the link that we're seeing an increase in almost every disease. Yeah. Our gene pool did not change that much. If it's not our genes, it has to be the environment. And then we started looking at environmental toxins. And right now, the big talk in the environmental toxin world is those PFAS, those per and polyfluoroalkyl substances that 3M, the company, made a settlement with the government of $10.3 billion. They admitted that those PFAS that you find in Teflon coating, you know, the nonstick coating, anything that keeps a water repellent, stain degreasers, all of this, that they've admitted there's data showing that those are dangerous to us. They're neurotoxic, they're developmental toxic, they affect almost every system. It's in 45% of the drinking water. 97% of Americans have high levels of PFAS in their blood. So now we can put two and two together to be like, okay, what's happened over the last 40, 50 years? Exposure to chemicals has gone up considerably and our incidence of chronic disease has increased. What's hard with environmental toxins is that there's more than 60,000 toxins in use right now. So it is really hard to pinpoint one and to say this is the cause. That's why it's hard for us to come up with it. You know, in my talk at AMMG, I talked about this, the cocktail effect of chemicals. You know, I'm in South Beach. I said that. (laughs) I love those drinks. Mai Tai. A Mai Tai has five different liquors in it. If I drink one liquor, one, you know, few whiskeys, I don't get drunk. You drink one Mai Tai, you feel it. Lower level of chemicals when put together increase it. So that's what we're seeing. They did a study the other day that they showed that women, because of the amount of cosmetic products that they are putting on them, have even more they had an average of 110 different chemicals in their blood. Men were about 60 to 70. Now you put all those chemicals, although they may be at low levels, but when you put all of those together and they combine, we're seeing the results now. So I had the medical director for Grail Cancer Screening, which is that newer blood test. That yes, test for the we 50. use it. Yeah. So he said that colorectal cancer will be the number one cancer yep. in the whole country. And he aligns with what you're saying here. And he thinks it's environmental factors and the plastics. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's super overwhelming for somebody to think about because of this stuff is hitting us all day, every day. Maybe give a few like tangible things that people can change in their day-to-day life to lower their exposure to some of these things. Definitely. I'm actually coming with an online class that's actually going to be exactly for this. Because when you look at the landscape of environmental activists, quote unquote, right, on TikTok and all this, they're raising the alarm. But a lot of them, you know, they don't have any qualifications. I'm not talking about about anybody. But me and my friend is an OBGYN who's also seeing low birth weight, infertility and all this. So we're coming up with a class first to Raise awareness. Number one is raising awareness. We need to be aware of this. Number two is once you're aware, what simple swaps can you make into your life to decrease your exposure? The sad reality is that those chemicals are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. We can't completely stay away from them, but this is a game of probability. Even if you can decrease your exposure by 10, 20, 30%, that may help. So this is my view of it. So number one, where we get a lot of toxins is water. 
the water that we drink. And we're hearing that everywhere. There's starting to be more awareness. Get a good filter. First, the website that I like, it's Environmental Working Group, the EWG group. So you can go, you can even look at your area and you put your zip code. It will tell you what kind of chemicals are in your area. And you can find what kind of filter you can use. There's actually a lawsuit right now against Brita Filter because everybody was buying Brita Filter thinking, oh my God, I'm protected. And they showed that in a lot of them, that it doesn't filter much at all. Some of the Brita filters were better, but there's so much confusion for a consumer when you start thinking about this. So number one is water. And a lot of people, when they hear water, they're like, let me drink water in plastic bottles. Now you get the BPA and the phthalates from the plastic. So trying to first get a good water filter from home. Then if you're going to take water with you, make sure that you drink out of a stainless steel bottle. So water is a big one. Number two, it's skincare products. This is where we get a lot of exposure and there's not much awareness about this. Our skin is the largest organ. So that's where we get a lot of those toxins. What's great is, and in my talk, I talked about this. Once you have awareness as a consumer, you have power. You have power with your wallet. If you start supporting and buying from those companies who are doing better products, because you can have good products without having to use all those parabens, phthalates. It makes them better. There's no question. But you can start choosing better, supporting those companies. And I'm starting to see a small shift where every company is trying to have healthier products. So first, awareness. Second is voting with your wallet. And then third, it's being part of a movement that's going to do this. What me and you are doing here, that's so important. And we need more people to talk about this because an educated consumer will make a better choice. And then if we do that as a group, not just as an individual, now we start forming groups. Imagine at one point we have 10 million people deciding I'm no longer buying this product that has phthalates and BPA. I'm buying that product from this company who has better products. The companies will start shipping. Yeah, they'll be forced we to make a change. Power. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're in Miami. Sunblock. That blew my mind when I found out about this. I said that in my talk. The way I was first exposed to this, I went to Hawaii. And in Hawaii, when you go to the beaches, they don't let you put regular sunblock on you. And I was like, okay, no problem. I put a mineral sunblock that they provided. Then I went and did my research. Yes, the regular sunblock that has oxybenzone, which is the main chemical we're using, avobenzone, anything with a benz usually is bad. So all those, they were found to kill the coal, coal bleaching. But that's not the only thing it does. It also affects the fertility of the zebrafish that is for the health of the corals. So it decreased the fertility of those fish, so the population of the fish would decrease. So in my mind, I was like, oh, you guys are worried about what's going to happen to the fertility of the fish, but not of me who's putting that every day, my kids, that's lathering this on us. So I switch. I'm only using mineral sunscreen. I'm not saying not to use sunscreen, but knowing which one is good, which one is better, which one you should stay away from. And with this, again, comes our power of voting with our wallet and influencing those companies into making better choices. Yeah, so I had... Uh, Number three. Oh, keep going. The kitchen. My God, I had to switch my pots and it was such a pain. (laughs) Those nonstick pots, they are amazing. So progress has helped us. There's no question. So my kids did not like me for a month when I was trying to switch from nonstick pens to regular pens. We were burning everything. But the nonstick, and you think about it, it makes sense, right? Why something so nonstick? That's when they use a lot of those PFAS chemicals. And if you have one scratch on it, it releases more than 3,000 nanoparticles. And then you're ingesting that all day long. 
Which you're so going to, when you look one. at those nonsticks, all the little cuts in them, when you use them over time, every time you cook, it's in your food. Yeah. Every single time. It goes time. in your system. Oh. So it is a little overwhelming. I've had some friends, even some physician friends of mine, when I talk about this, they're like, oh, this is too overwhelming. You have to die of something. It's all or none. People are doing this. It's either you're a complete activist, you're a crazy person, you, you know, you protect yourself as much, and then you become obsessed and anxious. Or you the other way completely, you're like, oh, you know, I'm not going to pay attention to this. We can find a balance of education, awareness, and then better decision. And if each one of us starts doing this at our home, choosing better, there will be a change eventually. Because yeah. this rate of chronic illnesses that we're seeing is not normal. Yeah, I totally agree. And I had Dr. Anthony Jay on my podcast who wrote the book yes. Estrogeneration. Estrogenics, yeah. And he, on his website, which then I put in the show notes and then on my Instagram link tree, which I'll link it here in this podcast as well. He's like tested so many of these different products from sunscreen to water filters to toothpaste, lotion to make it easier to navigate for the consumer, which it sounds like you're kind of working on a concept similar. So I'll attach yeah. this for the listeners so they can navigate this a little bit easier because it Definitely. is an uphill challenge for sure. But, you know, I made the switch on my pots and pans too, and I'm using the Callaway brand, which has been great. I mean, it was a little expensive, but I mean, the yes. design looks nice and cooks up well. And then one thing I want to point out on the plastic water bottles that you're talking about is when the plastic gets hot, you know, it's leaching these materials into our water. But I think people will then take this plastic water and then pour it into a stainless. You have to take into consideration the transportation to get these pallets of water exactly. to us. Like they have more than likely already been exposed to heat and are already leaching this product yeah. into our water. So like you really want to be installing a home water filter and using that to fill up your stainless steel, not just a bottle of water, pouring it into your stainless. Definitely. I was just on a cruise and that was amazing. It was in Alaska. So it was a company out of Canada. When I went into the cruise, usually you buy your bottles. They bring you 24 plastic bottles. They have boxed, cotton box water which is oh, amazing. It yeah. definitely feels different. I felt so amazing about this. And I'm like, I think it was called boxed water. There's another one called flow water. It's amazing. Again, it's companies like this who are thinking about this. So it came in a carton bottle, like, you know, what the carton of milks are. are. And I'm like, that's great. So not only am I not drinking the plastics, I'm not contributing yes. to killing our planet. You know, though, so, again, that's the higher consciousness I think we all need to have for us to really be able to come out of what we're going through right now. We have a new soccer team, professional soccer team in town, and I was amazed to the extent that they went. They are serving their water and aluminum. Their cans are aluminum, even the ones that you're getting like your mixed drinks Amazing. in versus plastic. They're using like the bamboo plates and the bamboo straws. And I was like, you yeah. know a round of applause for them because you know that's more expensive for them to do that but to feel like you know you're not just having to take what they give you that know that they're making yeah. a conscious effort there was i thought it was pretty cool to see amazing. that amazing yeah so there is starting to be more awareness we just need to talk about it more yeah so kudos to you for doing this it's really amazing so now i want to make the transition from environmental toxins to what both me and you do right hormone replacement for both men and women and how we're seeing an epidemic of testosterone deficiency in younger and younger men. And as you were saying, you know, now you go on the internet, you go on social media, you're a man, 
you're watching sports, you will find an advertisement for a testosterone booster or a testosterone clinic because that's all being marketed everywhere. And you know why this is happening? Because there's a need for it, right? There's a big need and that need is coming more and more and more. And you've had great guests already talking about the intricacies of testosterone replacement, what's the best form, what are the symptoms of low T, not blocking estrogen. Really what I felt like I wanted to talk to you because I love the title of your podcast. Women need and want strong men. And I think we're seeing that there's an amazing book of boys and men, I forgot the name of the author, that really goes over the statistics of how men and boys are falling behind girls and women. Because we're not sure what's happening. There's a lot of theories, but there's no question that we're seeing a lot more boys having issues with anxiety, performance, the workplace, really getting themselves where they want to be. And girls, I have twin girls, so I'm a girl dad. Girls are overperforming boys in almost every metric. So what is a girl to do, 25, 30, 35, 40, whatever age, has achieved, you know, got her master's degree, like, or is achieving, is working. A lot of women on top of finding themselves not being able to find a mate because women are no longer accepting or settling like they used to. So I feel like men need to step up and we need to talk about it with a lot of compassion, with a lot of understanding stating the problem and helping with solutions. Yep. No, I agree. I mean, I've been reading some things on like younger men are having less sex, less men are going to college. There's a higher rate of suicide and depression among these men. We see a lot of father sons that come in to our clinic and I'm sure you have experienced as well, but the children have lower testosterone than their fathers do. I mean, it's really a problem and it's compounding itself and it's manifesting in different ways that people might not realize. And there's some social issues, you know, going on the female movement. You can't like bulldoze over the men in the meantime, because that's not healthy because the reality is, you know, we're meant for each other. So there's a lot like the perfect storm going on. And I think the low testosterone's major, major issue that we're seeing in these young boys. Definitely. So, you know, when I was getting prepared for your podcast, I'm like, what is the definition of a strong man? And I think that has changed over the next generations. My dad was a quote unquote strong man. I'm from Haiti originally. So my dad moved from Germany, went to Haiti, built this business from the ground up, was a strong, typical man, did not talk much. Men don't cry. That's how he raised me. You know, pull yourself from your bootstraps. Go, go, go. That's how I was raised. There's value to this. But now, is that how we're still going to define a strong man? Like the typical strong man, and there's a lot like this. He, of course, cheated on my mom. I have brothers and sisters from all kinds of different women. And his view of a woman was stay in the kitchen. I go and make the money. And then I do whatever I want. And you don't have an option. That's not the strong man that women now want. So what, in my mind, what is a strong man? And I had to relearn again how to be a man. Because I grew up with that value. And I keep some of those because there's no questions that finding that as a man, male energy, not just as a man, because females have good male energy also. But male energy is to lead, to provide, to go forward, to do. So we still need that on our men. And I feel now that the pendulum has gone so much for those young men who a lot of times, because of so many different issues, 
social issues, a lot of things, but also hormonal imbalance, testosterone imbalance. And they find themselves that they don't have that zest, that push, that enthusiasm, that alpha energy to push. We need this. But we also need to balance it out with the right level of support, communication, groundedness, resiliency. So that's why for me, I came up with an interesting concept. So you know the concept of an alpha man, right? An alpha. That's what every guy wants to, that's why every woman who wants to succeed, you know, we know alpha. So alpha, but the only thing, alpha tends to have a negative connotation because alpha is winning at whatever cost, go, 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 tend not to be nice people, impatient, but good qualities of leadership, needing to win, wanting to perform and to do and to protect. So what if we could have an alpha that you combine now with the other great qualities like compassion, empathy, communication, right? Right. And then now being able to have a strong female with you or a strong partner and your way of being in a couple doesn't mean that you have to push the other one. One can lead, then the other one leads. You each have your roles and you support each other. So I call that a theta male. Okay. So it's an alpha that has that desire to win, to provide, to conquer, but with a deep heart and with connection and compassion. I love that. That's what women really want. I talk about this a little bit. Like my husband is a strong man. If he wasn't, I wouldn't be able to do what I was doing today. He would be insecure. He would be jealous. He would be controlling. And that's not the characteristics of female that is driven and has a career once. And it's been a while since I've Googled, you know, what it means to be a strong man. But I remember things like confident, assertive, protector, you know, all of these things that were very motivated. And, you know, like everything in life, it's balance. It's balance. I definitely think, again, I take my example of dad. I love my dad. My dad passed. But it was too much on that pendulum of the alpha, of the put women in their place, some misogyny, some promiscuity. Not a great partner. He was a great dad. He wasn't a great partner. So finding that balance, I feel like in the Western world, we're not good at balance. In the Western world, we're one way or the other, you know, in, in almost everything that we're doing. Whether it's politics, whether it's personal relationships, there's no balance. And for me, when I talk about male and female, I love to think about male and female energy, not even talking about men and women. Male energy is the one that has straight lines, go forward, almost no compromise, keeps going, wants to provide, wants to protect, confidence all the way. Female energy signified by the circle tends to be a little more flexible, a little more creative, and a little more, that's why women are the ones that give birth. Men could not. We just give the seed. <laughs> yeah. So to me, he's having that balance. A man needs a good balance of those two. And a female, a woman needs a good balance of those two. When you have two, like a partner, a partnership, a couple that has those two, it's a powerful yeah. couple. And this is where I think hormone optimization comes in, plays a big role. Because before I thought personality and character were static. They're not. Hormones play a big role on our personality and our character. So you see a man, and we deal a lot because I got the training for the traumatic brain injury. So we deal a lot with patients with post-TBI, ex-athletes, veterans. And you see some guys that were such alphas, such drivers, such performers, such, you know, amazing, have done amazing things in their life. 
And then you see them become a shell of themselves, you know, as they get older, if they've had a TBI. And what's at the base of this? It's hormone imbalance. A lot of time, you take a man, you give him low testosterone or slow thyroid, he is not the same person. He cannot act the same way. So that's when it made me realize how hormones are important. You know, most people think about testosterone as a muscle enhancer and for sex. It does right. so much more than this. You know, testosterone binds with the serotonin receptors. So it's important for mood. It's important for men overall wellness, but even his social position in the world. So when a man has low testosterone, especially if he has it in his youth, in his 20s yeah. and 30s, which are the years where he should be at peak performance, trying to really reach the maximum, whether it's at home, at the gym, at work, in his community, you give a man like this low testosterone, he's never going to be the best version of yeah, himself. Absolutely. And that's what we're seeing. I'm not saying that everything we're seeing, all those statistics we're seeing in young men, is only because of testosterone, but it plays a major yeah. role. One example, and I've been following this for a long time, Japan is wrestling with this and having a lot of problems with it. Actually, there is a phenomenon in Japan called hikikomori, which is where a lot of young people just decided they don't want to work, they're going to just lay flat, and let life go by. Because, you know, the corporate structure in Japan is very strict. It's 10 hours a day, six days a week. You have to, you know, competition is really fierce. So a lot of young, I forgot the statistic, but it was almost 3 million young men, young people, and mostly young men, have decided they're not going to take part of this, quote-unquote, rat race, the game. So, and they just decided we're going to lay flat. And we're seeing a lot more like this in the United yeah. States now. But I like that in Japan, they've been following this more and they finally did a study where they looked at those young men who had hikikomori and majority of them had low testosterone. Oh, interesting. So there is yeah. a link between what young men want to achieve and their hormonal yeah. milieu. There is no question. I'm going to have to look that up because I haven't been following that. One thing I want you to distinguish the difference between is the estrogen that you're exposed to through the drinking water or through these plastics and the difference between the estradiol conversion that happens when you're on testosterone. Because I think sometimes, you know, people get confused like, oh, I don't want the estrogen, but then actually how it's beneficial to you whenever it does, you know, aromatize over when you're on testosterone. That's a great point. And I'm glad you spoke to Dr. Anthony J. We interviewed him also at our clinic. I read his book 20 times because it is a lot to read. He made it very understandable for the average person, but it is, it is very well written. So we have to make the difference between endogenous estrogen, especially estradiol, which is the most common estrogen that's done naturally in our body, and estrogenic, synthetic estrogens. That's what those endocrine-disrupting chemicals are. They mimic estrogen. They are not estrogen. We need estradiol in our body. Every organism needs estradiol, not just male, not just female. Because the way we get our action of testosterone, a lot of times, it's testosterone turns into estradiol via the aromatase enzyme. And estradiol has been shown to really be good for brain health, bone health, heart health, and so many other things. So that estradiol is the one that we're saying if you're doing testosterone replacement therapy, do not block it with an aromatase inhibitor because you need estradiol. The estrogen we're talking about in the environmental toxins, Dr. J said it. He calls it estrogenics. They're not estrogen. They're not estradiol. They mimic estrogen and they bind with the estrogen receptor. And what happens is 
when you bind to the estrogen receptor and you're a synthetic hormone, it's like a switch, a light switch. If an estrogenic, one of those synthetic estrogen comes and binds to the receptor, it turns it on. So now you have estrogen dominance. You have estrogen type cancers like breast cancer, prostate cancer, and then your natural estradiol can no longer work. So there's different mechanism of action from those estrogenic. So I don't even call them estrogen in our thing because it's confusing. They're estrogenics. So they have multiple mechanisms of action. One of the most common is that they block the estrogen receptor or sometimes the endogen receptors. Some of those environmental toxins, they've been shown to increase SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin. So you'll see that a lot of times when we do in consults, and especially young men, you'll see that their total testosterone is decent, maybe four, five, even 600. And you check a free testosterone and you see the free testosterone is very low because they have a high SHBG. What's causing SHBG to be so high in a lot of men, we're not 100% sure, but there are studies now linking different toxins to a higher SHBG level. So that was a really good point. Estrogen, they're really estrogenic. Those are synthetic compounds. Do not confuse it with estradiol, the endogenous estradiol. And then just one more thing for people to think about with this talk around estrogen and it being in our water supply. We're not capable of filtering out for example, like birth control pills, what's coming through our water system. So just stop and think about that. When did birth control pills come into existence? I don't know, what is it, 20 years ago? You might know better than- 40, yeah, 40, 50 years. Yeah. And we're not capable of filtering that completely out. So this stuff is also ending back up into our drinking water. Like when you do these tests on it, it's crazy. Which I did want to ask you, are you working towards or teamed up with somebody that is creating a lab test to be able to test if some of these chemicals are in our body? We are. And there's a great company called Million Marker. And they're out of California, I think San Francisco. And they do a urine sample where you can check your BPA levels, a lot of those PFAS. So Million Marker, they're really good. They're actually doing more studies. They're enrolling into a study. We interviewed Dr. Shana Swan. She wrote a book that all your viewers should read, Countdown, How Sperm Count Has Decreased 52% Over the Last 40 Years. And she was able to link this to a lot of those pesticides, specifically BPA, phthalates, the pesticides like atrazine, glyphosate, a lot of the parabens, a lot of those. So what has really gotten me to be a quote-unquote environmental activist is reading the book from Dr. Anthony J, Estrogeneration, and the book from Shana Swan, Countdown. You read those two books, your view of the world is going to change completely. So I think everybody should because this is going to make you start taking responsibility. And also even as a provider, for me, it made me understand a lot more. Why am I seeing what I'm seeing? Why am I seeing so much chronic illnesses, so much hormone imbalance? What's happening? So those gave me a lot of answers. So it made me a better physician, a more empathetic physician, because I know you see that a lot. The average 30, 35 young man who has low T, symptoms are usually fatigue, decreased motivation, gaining weight, sometimes depression, anxiety, decreased libido, ED. We'll have to talk about ED, how much of a problem that has become. A 30, 35-year-old man goes to his primary care doctor with those symptoms. They don't even check a testosterone. They'll never check a free testosterone. That's the last thing from the conventional doctor, which I am. I'm conventionally trained. I'm still doing primary care work. But if that guy goes to a regular doctor, he has more chances of coming out with an SSR, an antidepressant, than anything else, which makes everything yep. worse. So 
we need to educate ourselves, not only the patients. On the patient side, I talk to my colleagues all the time. What we learned in the 80s and 90s has changed. Medical schools are not preparing physicians for this onslaught of environmental-driven disease that we're seeing. Again, the word that I learned is the exposome. Everything you've been exposed to from conception until now has an effect on your health. It's a huge thing to even think about. But until we start talking about it, and as you were saying, do we have a great test? We don't have a great test about it. How crazy is this? But now very smart people are putting money, and there's a lot of venture capitalist type money going into this. So I know some good tests are going to come down the line. There's nothing great now. Million markers, the one that I know. And that's the okay, one I would suggest. perfect. I'll look that up. And the Shana Swan, she was also on Joe Rogan. So if people are more of a podcast listener than a book listener, he did a good episode with Shana several months ago. Because exactly with Joe Rogan, you know, they talked about the anal yes. genital distance, which is yes. the taint, the distance between the anus and the testicles. And Shana Swan did a study where she measured that distance in babies. And what that distance showed, that first, it can tell you how much exposure you had to plastics or endocrine-disrupting chemicals, how much that baby had exposure to this in the womb. And if it's a shorter distance, it predicted in the future a higher risk of all kinds of disease like infertility, low testosterone, testicular cancer, and all of those things. So this one little measurement was able to really look in the back at exposure and then predict the future of health. So we almost were going to do a study with her to measure this and then try to see if there was a correlation in adults, not in kids, between the size of the AGT and incidence of infertility, low T, ED, and all those other issues. Now, listeners are immediately wanting to measure, and now they yes. don't know what the measurement. <laughs> they don't know what they're measuring for. They're like, what's my goal here on the distance? No, so uh, she says that. He even said that on Joe Rogan. We cannot make any statements on individuals. Those are population-based yeah. studies. It's hard to know if you're okay with what's my distance, what's yours. And something interesting also, because you talked about this, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome in women, it is part of that same spectrum of endocrine disruptors that we're seeing. So when boys are exposed in the womb or the first trimester to plastics, to those estrogenics, they don't get the push of testosterone that they need to, to really develop the secondary male sexual characteristics. When women, female fetuses are exposed and they have too much testosterone, their anogenital distance actually becomes longer, and there's a higher risk of PCOS or other fertility-type issues. So it affects both sides. So let's transition there. You and I were talking offline about PCOS because we were talking about GLP-1s, which is like ozempic, semaglutide, Monjero, trisepatide. There's several of them. Most people know that they can decrease your appetite and lose weight. But I don't feel like a lot of people are talking about the impact it has on people with insulin resistance and how that improves and how that improves overall metabolic health. So maybe talk about it from that aspect because you are a weight loss specialist and do have a clinic dedicated specifically to weight loss. Definitely. I feel like GLP-1 medications like Mount Jiao and, and Ozempic have been the most important development in medication that we've made ever because nothing has been a better metabolic influencer than those medications. So a lot of people think about them as diabetes medications. They are not diabetic medications. So they influence the incretins, 
which are hormones that are secreted in the gut, things like GLP-1, GIP, and glucagon that increase your own insulin production. So they, when they were studying those compounds back in the 1980s, that's the first action that they saw, that it makes your insulin, increases your own insulin sensitivity, increases your endogenous insulin production. So that's when they looked at where is, is there a lot of money to be made, was diabetes. So the first GLP-1 became FDA approved for diabetes in 2005. Those are not new medications. And in my internal medicine practice, I've switched most of my type 2 diabetics to GLP-1 medications because they work so much better. So I've been using GLP-1 medication for 18 years for diabetics. The first GLP-1 became FDA approved without having diabetes in 2014, Saxenda. 2017, Ozempic came out. And Ozempic became so much better for weight loss than everything. It became a blockbuster drug. Ozempic or Wegovy are the brand name for semaglutide. Then Tilzepatide came out in 2021, which is Mount Jao, which targeted another enzyme called GIP on top of the GLP-1. So first, it's not a diabetic medication. It influences a gut hormone that has a lot of actions in our metabolism. So what it does really it really helps decrease insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is the most important thing that we need to talk about. This is what is at the base of so many chronic diseases that we're seeing. And insulin resistance doesn't mean that you're obese. Insulin resistance can happen at any weight. You can be a skinny fat person that has insulin resistance. Now, a lot of those endocrine disruptors, like those PFAS, like glyphosate, have been linked to endocrine, a fatty liver, and insulin resistance. PCOS, the baseline of PCOS is insulin resistance. So it is causing so many issues, and we've never had anything as effective as the GLP-1 to help improve insulin resistance. Just a comment on this. You see a lot of, this is a big topic in the media, social media, and there's been a lot of shaming a lot around of shaming. it as well. I call as it well. tide shaming. Yeah, and it's like, What's going on here? They're just like, well, just eat less, eat less, eat less. I want to just reiterate, like this drug does not just make you eat less. All these things that you're talking about here with the insulin resistance is also coming in to play here. So I just want you to just elaborate on that a little bit more, maybe what insulin resistance is, how do people know that they have it, some of these things that people are experiencing and have no idea because they're not technically obese. So insulin resistance, again, is when your body, when we eat food and when we eat glucose or any kind of carbs, turns into sugar and the body needs to reabsorb those. If not, it's going to be stored into fat. So insulin needs to be there to really get them into the tissue. And when you develop insulin resistance, that's even before prediabetes, is your body makes a lot more insulin to be able to get rid of the sugar. So blood test, so first, symptoms like uh, physical signs that you can show you that you may have insulin resistance. Increased belly fat, like a waist size for women usually greater than 32, for men greater than 35, indicates a possibility of insulin resistance. The more body fat you have, the more your chance of having insulin resistance. Insulin resistance can also be genetic, familial. There is incidence of prediabetes insulin resistance in family, but usually it is waist size and body fat percentage. Blood tests that you can do if you have insulin resistance, we always do a fasting insulin. If your fasting insulin is above 20, that's way too high. Normal, it's about 10. We like to keep it below 10. So the next thing that usually will happen is you'll have first an increase in your insulin. Your blood sugar remains normal. 
So if you take a blood sugar, fasting sugar, or a hemoglobin A1C, a lot of times those will be normal. The first sign of insulin resistance, it's a high fasting insulin level. Then you can develop fasting hyperglycemia, meaning that when you're fasting, your blood sugar is above 100. That's also a sign of insulin resistance. Another thing I learned from a lipidologist I went to do some studies with is the ratio of triglyceride to HDL. So a lot of patients, you'll see that. The LDL doesn't always tell us the whole story, but if you have a high triglyceride level, especially high triglyceride to low HDL, that ratio can point you towards if you have insulin resistance or not. Another physical sign you can have for insulin resistance, it's acanthosis nigricans. It's when you have those dark circles, a lot around your neck, around the arms, this is also insulin resistance. So I work at a primary care clinic in Miami, and it is for a Native American tribe, and the incidence of diabetes is exploding in Native Americans because the diet is so bad, it's no longer ancestral diet. The incidence is really high. And then we do clinics like this yearly where we check the kids if they have that. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's that kind of black, kind of velvety, darker color. And a lot of people think, oh, it's dirt. You know, you have to have good hygiene. It's a sign of insulin resistance. So now if you have insulin resistance, so you have blood tests you can do. There's another blood test called HOMA. IR, it's a quotient of insulin resistance you can get on a blood test also. So between physical signs and blood tests, everybody should know whether they have insulin resistance or not, because the implications of insulin resistance are multiple. Insulin resistance has been associated with high risk of cardiovascular disease, high risk of neurodegenerative disease. Actually, Alzheimer's dementia is now being called type 3 diabetes, because we feel that it's a lot of the glycated sugars in your brain that plays a role in Alzheimer's dementia. So living a low insulin lifestyle, a low carb lifestyle is one of those most important things to do. I don't care how you do it. My preferred one is more the Mediterranean diet, but we cannot keep consuming all the carbs, simple sugars that are in our food. And what's bad in our country is we use so much high fructose corn syrup. This is like one of the biggest problems. There was this really nice post that was circulating on social media, they took a Heinz ketchup bottle from the US and they compared the ingredients in UK, in London. And they saw, I think the second ingredient in the US was high fructose corn syrup. There was none of it in the UK. So all of our products are being laced. I like to use that word because we don't need the high fructose corn syrup in all of those foods. They are putting it in everything. So processed foods are full of high fructose corn syrup on top of all the other chemicals. So that's why I said for me, the lowest hanging fruit of wellness is nutrition. And when I say nutrition, it's knowing what you're eating and knowing your level of insulin resistance. Because if you don't fix your insulin resistance, your hormones won't work that well. So will you use this medication in people that have just 10, 15 pounds to lose, or will you only use it in people that are obese? Definitely. And, you know, like now those medications are showing so many other benefits. I have a lot of my patients come in. They have maybe 20, 30 pounds to lose. They come with a lot of guilt, a lot of shame that they're going to come and use this. We shouldn't have this. A lot of those patients, one of the benefits they found with the medication is that they were drinking less. And it's been shown, they're actually doing a study for this, that it decreases the amount that you drink, decreases your cravings for alcohol. So if I have a patient who's improved their body fat percentage, their waist size went down, they're not drinking as much. You know, there's a new study that just came out, the Traverse trial, that they looked at 17,000 patients that they followed for five years. 
taking semaglutide. And they showed that it decreased the risk of heart disease, heart failure, and cardiovascular death by 20%. Statins don't do this. We throw statins at everybody. Like now I have a medication that can help you eat less, drink less, improve your metabolic and inflammatory markers, and decrease cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular death. The problem that we're having is demand and supply, right? Supply and demand. They're not making enough of it. So in Miami, even if you get a prescription from your doctor, you cannot find it. So in my practice, we use mostly the compounded ones. And I want to make sure that when I say compounded, I don't mean the ones that are made for research. I use the ones that I get pharmacy. Those are pharmacy that are approved by the board of pharmacies. They have all of their uh, sterility and quality control certificates. And they are able to make semaglutide or tilzepatide. And they are allowed to do this because when a medication is in short supply, a compounding pharmacy has the right to do it. And as a doctor, I have a license to protect. I will only go to a pharmacy that is approved by the board of pharmacy, and I will use those peptides because they are truly magical for somebody who needs to lose, whether it's 10 pounds, 20 pounds. If you have body fat, we're not just, I like to use the word visceral adipose tissue, VAT. It's not about your weight. It's about your VAT. If you have a high VAT, I don't care what your weight is, you're at risk of metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, and other complications. So we measure VAT in the office. And if you have a high VAT, we will help you with this. And, you know, one thing I want to say, it's not just that it decreases your appetite, because the way the mechanism of action of those medications, the way it decreases appetite, is that it slows down digestion. So it takes longer for the food to come down. That's why the side effects tend to be more GI-related. You can have nausea, constipation, acid reflux, and there's people who have episodes of vomiting. So that's one of the mechanisms of action. But the other mechanism of action is that it works in a part of our brain that's related to satiety. The dopamine release that we get when we eat gets blunted when we take those medications. So a lot of patients, usually by the second month of taking those, they'll tell me, they're like, the food noise that I used to have in my head is gone. I don't have that complete rumination, always thinking about food. What am I going to eat next? Oh my God, I shouldn't have eaten that. Oh, I want ice cream. It takes a lot of that away. So it's amazing when it works well, what it does. It's a win, win, win. It decreases your hunger, increases your your insulin resistance, improves your inflammatory markers. And now with traverse trial, we know that it decreases cardiovascular risk. So really, if there was not an issue of supply, and if there was not an issue of FDA approval, who is it approved for, that should not even be an issue. This is an amazing peptide, an amazing medication. And when you combine tilzepatide or semaglutide with testosterone, because a lot of those people who have insulin resistance, that decreases your testosterone action. So yes, one big criticism of those medications is that you can lose muscle weight with it. And I'm like that muscle mass, and that's true. You know why? Because you lose so much weight that eventually you lose muscle mass with it also. So what we do is we make sure that anybody who's taking those medications, that they take enough protein. They really lift weights with it. And if they are androgen deficient, to replace their androgen status with testosterone or whatever you need to use. When you do this, testosterone plus a GLP-1, you will have a completely different patient. Yep. Totally agree. And, you know, a few points there, you mentioned the type three diabetes, you know, Alzheimer's being classified as type three diabetes. I've seen that this drug's being used in studies for that. Or cognitive function. 
cognitive function damp downs that sugar craving people with that disease uh, typically have. And then, you know, the point to the compound pharmacies, that was another, you know, big media blitz where they tried to scare people from using the drug if it was compounded because they knew that a lot of these clinics were having to get it from compound pharmacies because you couldn't get the commercial brand. When that the title of those headlines really should have been black market Ozempic, not compound pharmacies. I mean, there's going to be bad actors in this thing where there's money to be made. And that's no matter what the drug is, the medication is, designer purse, you name it, right? <laughs> People are knocking stuff off. Okay. So it was like it got the headlines weren't necessarily the reality, I guess. So people just need to be cognizant of some of this. I mean, the media has really disappointed me on this one in a time where they should be excited about being able to control obesity in America, the number one killer of Americans. Instead, they're demonizing a medication that can help people get there. And it's really been disappointing to see. But I guess I should not be surprised coming off the heels of something like COVID where the media lied to us nonstop with that as well. So great medication. We have a lot of success with it. So before we wrap up here, do you have anything else you want to say? First, I really enjoyed this. And it's amazing what you're doing, what we're doing. We need more functional medicine specialists, clinics, reputable that do the right thing for their patients. Because I know the results we get up for our patients when they go back to their conventional primary care docs, it's mind-opening. I love going to the AMMG conference, the A4M conferences, because you see a lot more doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs are going there. They're getting training for that. This is something that we did not learn in school, but I encourage every clinician that's listening to this, go and get trained. Understand how to do hormone replacement, nutrition, how to use those new medications, those new peptides. Utilize nutrition science as one of the tools to really help people be the best version of themselves. So I love what you're doing. I love that we can collaborate on those things because the world needs a lot more like you and us. Yes. Well, awesome. This was a great podcast. If you took anything away from it, please like and share and follow the show. I appreciate everybody tuning in today. And as always, I'll attach all this information so you can find Doctor's Practice and these other podcast episodes that we talked about. I will link everything in the show notes. Thank you and have a great day. 